0: As I was coming up here, I knew I would have a small group this morning because I wouldn't have walked up that hill either if I wouldn't have absolutely had to. Before, we're we're waiting for another computer, which we'll try to catch up with later. But before we begin, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with a prayer. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we're thankful to be able to gather together in this morning hour to talk about a very important issue. One of importance not just to those of us who've been called upon to give counsel or advice to others, but for those of us that also need to receive advice from time to time. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would make up for whatever lack there is in the presenter and also, Lord, that you might open our minds and our hearts to be able to accept the things that you'd have us to learn because, Lord, that's what we're here for, to be able to learn how to be better counselors and more effective in our counseling. So, Father, bless us and grant that this might not just be one form on counseling, but the beginning of a series, Lord willing, over the next few years, so that we might be able to hone those skills that are needed to be effective counselors, for we pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Um, As I said in the introduction, I am not a counselor. Uh, I have never played one on TV and I did not stay at a Holiday Inn Express, so I'm not an authority on much of anything. And as I pointed that out to my son, Rob, who if I had the first uh, image up there, the name of the form is uh, Hear Me, Help Me, uh, Listening and Responding Therapeutically, and I put Rob's name up there instead of mine. Most of you probably know uh, Rob even better than you know me, and it's kind of neat to get to that point in life where more people know your kids than you. Uh, But he is uh, a psychologist, and I can call him that now because he's actually got one degree in it. He has a degree in research psychology, and he's going for a degree right now, a, a master's degree in counseling, which when I was trying to understand what he did. I I just assumed that once you become a psychologist, you know it all, you know all about people's problems, and therefore you can counsel people and help people. In reality, um, his degree, his first master's is in research psychology. And so he said, Dad, if I stayed with that, which they wanted him to do, I'd just be an egghead professor, trying to understand why people think the way they do or how people learn He said, I'd never really be able to help people. And so he quit his doctorate program, much to the chagrin of some professors, and went into into counseling, which one of his uh, other advisors, her husband is the head of that program, so they're very happy that Rob's in counseling now. But he said, psychologists don't necessarily know how to counsel. And we're almost there, and I'll, I'll actually use... This to advance slides because it helps me stay on track and you'll be able to see where I'm going with it. But the one thing that I wanted to try to impress as we get going here is that counseling really is a very serious thing. We tend to use the term counsel and we did last night as as the brother suggested that uh, the reality is and I want to go through this series. We are actually handing you a loaded gun. Two months of information is about to be given in 50 minutes, I hope. And a little bit of knowledge is like a loaded gun. Understand that these are skills that need to be learned, practiced, and honed. They may come naturally to some, less for others, but require practice for everyone. Use this as a, jump, a jumping point for you to learn more about your own, on your own and to seek guidance from professionals be guided by the spirit, be guided by love, be guided by, other, by the other person, the person that you're counseling or talking to, and I'm going to address that in a second. And lastly, you know, counseling and mentoring, Rob said, is not necessarily prescriptive, and what that means is that you're giving instructions, you're giving, you do this, 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 and this, and we're going to fix your problems, or we're going to address your issues. In reality... It is not only uh, where he says, not necessarily. As someone who's talked with other people, it is rarely prescriptive. Rarely are you going to be able to do a good job counseling or mentoring somebody if you think you're going to tell them what to do, because that's not your function. Understand that bad counsel is worse than no counsel. And so, one of the things that we wanted to try to do, especially because we, we, we have a lot of brothers and sisters uh, who are called upon to answer people's questions, take care of their pro- help them find answers to their problems, what ends up happening is it, we're in a situation where we don't necessarily even know exactly what we're doing, and quite frankly, legally, in even even if you're in church, understand you should not call yourself a counselor unless you have a degree. You can call yourself a spiritual advisor, but technically you're not a counselor, and someone uh, that you don't know could actually sue the church for you giving bad counsel. So we need to understand that the days that we're living in, counseling doesn't even necessarily mean what it did 20 years ago. If If you say you're a counselor, somebody's going to expect that you have some credentials to back this up. So the question is, where do we fit in in all of this and and what are we talking about here? You as the advisor must be using your own skills of empathy, your personal emotional barometer, barometer, and your own past experiences to actively gauge the individual that you're talking to. Understand that most of the time what you're talking about is something that you have some experience in, so you you can relate to that. But also understand that what you're trying to do here is not tell them about yourself, you're trying to learn about that person. It doesn't matter whether we're counseling and we're talking about leading someone to the Lord and their, and their search for, for salvation or if we're talking about their personal problems, their spiritual problems. Those things are all the same. Uh, but you have to remember that while you're using some of your stuff that you might have experienced, you're also, you need to stay objective. Uh, a fine balance between emotional investment and distance is played out. We're going to talk a little bit about that emotional investment. If you're going to counsel people, if you're going to advise people spiritually, you have to be willing to invest yourself in that, and probably to an extent that you might not even be totally prepared to do. But if you're too close, what's going to end up happening is you lose your ability to see the bigger picture, the individual's best interests and the larger scheme of their behavior that causes the outcomes. In other words, you're you're going to be so close to them emotionally and even in proximity sometimes that you can't really be truly objective and be able to see the big picture. And if you're too far away, then you lose the connection with the individual, which might cause you to miss crucial details needed to form appropriate interpretations and solutions. And remember a college student, or actually now he's a college professor, wrote this. So these are not my words. I'll try to translate when necessary. Most important thing, if you want to be a counselor or you want to be an advisor to someone, is you have to learn how to listen. You, you And and I remember when I first sat down with Rob, I said, well, that's easy. We just, you know, listen to their problems. Be open-minded. All of a sudden, I learned that listening uh, is as he says here, is required for any type of relation to exist, a counseling or otherwise. Remember, you're not really a good friend if all you do is all the talking. So if you have friendships. But how we listen and what we listen for quantitatively changes our encounter. And what we need to do as advisors or those that are going to be giving advice to others or helping them with their problems is learning to listen in a different way. Uh, in a helping relationship, you're listening for those things that are most clinically significant, and that's a psychology term, but the things that are really affect the situation the most. Um, those things that provide you insight to uncover the true roots of an individual's problem. We're going to talk about what some of the things that happened there. Uh, strategy is important. You actually have a strategy coming into your encounter with somebody else, But knowing what you're listening for changes the kinds of questions that you ask, which will help the person you're working with move progressively towards the goal and to change. That's the reason that people are talking to us in the first place. They need help with something. They need to change a situation in their life. They need to reach a goal somehow, be it it, it being born again or be it overcoming a, a sin or whatever. And that's really what we're trying to do as we help them. But The interesting thing that I learned is there are really two different kinds of listening, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, Linear listening, and we're also going to talk about non-linear listening, but linear listening is is expedient. It's very direct and to the point. It it addresses the most important details of what you're hearing. The surface of an individual's story is no less important Then the deeper meaning, sometimes we think that every time we talk to somebody, we have to look for the deeper meaning in what they're saying. Understand, it may be right there on the surface, so you have to pay attention to that because that's their first way of trying to communicate what they want to. And the the other way then is non-linear listening, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But let's talk about linear listening. When we're listening to somebody in a linear way, we're listening for, for the content, for just the basic information that they're giving us. Uh, the simple exchange of information, the what of what we're talking about, the black and white outline of a narrative, uh, factual, uh, has concrete specific, uh, specifics in time, place, action, etc. Like I had pancakes for breakfast this morning. That's information I just gave you and I didn't. I had eggs. Um, but it's also what psychologists call observational but when I when I said rob observational sounds like it's something that they observed it's something it, that's something that they've witnessed and that's not what it means it means their perception or how they observe things but that's still considered linear information that's given to you it's open interpretation and it's ambiguous somebody says i think my spouse is having an affair that's a very direct thing but it's not necessarily fact but it is observational because of how they see the situation so why is content important it provides basic information about what the individual believes is the problem. It's always important to know what the person thinks is their problem. may not necessarily be the case, but you need to know, have a starting point. So you have the problem source, a potential goal for uh, remediation, means fixing things, uh, assets the individual brings to the encounter. Again, you know, college terms. What we're talking about is what are they really bringing to the equation? When we're talking to somebody about a change that needs to take place, we're going to find out there are a lot of things that might be happening and might not be happening, but at least when we listen to them the first time in a linear way, we're trying to put all those pieces together so we at least get an overview of what's happening. So it's important for you as a mentor or an advisor to pay attention to the content, and the thing that I found interesting about this was it slows down your process so you don't get ahead of the individual. How many times have you either spoken to someone or had someone that, that you shared something with that you're looking for advice who already had the solution a long time before you ever told them what the problem was? In other words, they had a preset idea and, 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 and how to take care of this, or they heard the first sentence of what the person said and they've already developed in their mind how this ought to be fixed, quote unquote. Most important thing is to slow down and learn to listen. And that's why we're talking about this today. And by the way, hopefully, this is not going to be the last time that we talk about, about counseling or giving advice here at camp. I, I, my prayer, and th- one of the things that I've been concerned about for a long time, is that while we, uh, we, we haven't really been honing our skills very well over the last few years, and I, I'd like to say that we have been at least in teaching, but we've even kind of let that slide to a degree. We used to get together and learn how to teach, those of us that are teachers. And it made us much better teachers. It's not that we're imparting man's wisdom and superseding God's with that, but God expects us to make the most of the information that we have and to be able to try to use those things to his honor and to his glory. If he's given you a gift, if he's given you a responsibility, we need to work at it and hone it. And that includes our counseling skills or our advising skills. I'm going to use counseling kind of in a loose term. Linear listening also includes listening for feelings. It kind of sounds like a lot like nonlinear. and we're gonna to get to that too, but how somebody demonstrates their emotions and, and, uh, and, and their feelings about things adds color and texture to the narrative landscape. Paying attention to the type and intensity of the motion lets you know what parts of the narrative or what people are saying are most important. Pay attention to the context of the display of emotion. Are they saying? Are they getting excited about something when they should be getting excited about something, or are they, or are they pounding their their fist on their knee or on the table when what they're saying doesn't really have a lot to do with it? We'll talk a little bit more about that, but you 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 need to hear the feeling of what's being said. Uh, My boss makes me so angry. Well, you can hear there's emotion there, and that's something that's going to probably have to be dealt with but you can also see the feelings during what's being said. Facial expressions, speech quality, whether it's a real short staccato sort of thing or if it's really soft and all of a sudden they just start choking up or whatnot. Um, speech and tone is important. If somebody says to you, I'm really happy uh, that you've done well. Doesn't necessarily sound like they are. Wrinkled brow, slightly squinting eyes, soft tone of voice, there's this slight quiver, that something didn't, it obviously didn't make sense there. So you also utilize, utilize empathy when connecting with the individual to gauge their emotion. I, I, I started off by saying that you need to be invested of yourself emotionally, spiritually, um, time, and everything if you're going to actually counsel someone. And it's it can be draining. Um, as As I'll explain later, it can be exhausting. But you have to be able to feel for that person. And if you don't have the type of a, of a nature that can feel for other people, you probably don't want to do a whole lot of counseling because you need to be sensitive to the person that you're talking to and to their, their needs. Now, nonlinear listening is, is a little bit different. Instead of going from A to B to C and telling you exactly what happened in a row, you're listening for that, and this is where it starts to get really, really complicated. You are listening for the linear uh, message, but you also have to be open to the nonlinear cues that are going on at the same time. You're seeing where all of a sudden uh, A relates to D and how B relates to F and C, and it doesn't go in a straight line. And rarely, when you're dealing with people about emotional things, are they going to be able to go give you a direct line of communication as to what their problem is and, and how we might be able to go about solving it. Uh, linear de- details provide the balance, what an individual is ready or willing to provide, but the nonlinear listening helps to unearth the details of what they don't want to disclose or to see their situation in a way that's new and thereby not hopeless. Most of the times when people come to us and need help or are asking for guidance, it's because they don't feel that they can deal with the situation. And that's partly scriptural, too. You know, if you're over, he, he that's overcome with a fault, go find somebody. Pray together. You're working together. And so if somebody's coming to you because they feel that their situation's hopeless. You need to be able, with God's help, to show them that I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And there is no such thing as a hopeless situation with God. Um, non-linear listening. Uh, implements more of the nonverbal aspects of communication. We're going to talk about that a little bit too. So let's, let's talk about nonlinear listening. It, it involves listening with the eyes, the ears, feelings, intuitions, and a fairly open mind. Uh, understand, not a, we're not just tossing everything that we know or, or, or especially scripturally and spiritually to the side. We're keeping all those things. That's why we say a fairly open mind. But you have to remember that we're watching, we're listening, we're hearing, hopefully we're feeling what somebody is talking about. Hearing things that aren't spoken or are conspicuous by their absence, things that people don't talk about that they should be. Identifying certain things that individuals may uh, spend too much time on when they're discussing what we'll talk about a little bit more, conversational red herrings. Um, and understanding the subtleties of language and what the words, expressions, images, behaviors, and feelings expressed really signify. These lead to five categories or components of nonlinear listening, and I'm gonna show you what they are. First one's called congruency, and you don't have to take notes and know all of this, because trust me, when you get done with this, you're not gonna know a whole lot more than when you started. And I know that sounds really like, why are we here? This is to show all of us, including the one that's doing the presentation, how complicated this is and how much we really need to work at things and learn. First one's congruency. How do things correspond? How things relate to each other? Do they correspond with each other or lack thereof between what's being said and what's being meant? Absence is what's not being said via silence, rambling, or focusing on one thing rather than everything else, and we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about all of these. Inference, which is the purpose behind what I want, statements. uh, Presence, which is body language, facial tones, nuances that add meaning to the narrative, and resistance, the desire not to change. So let's look at them, Uh, congruence. Uh, We're listening to see what the two stories, the conscious and the unconscious, whether they match. Because whether we realize it or not, and when you're talking about the conscious, what we say consciously often is not what's happening necessarily subconsciously with us. There may be things going in the back of my mind, and I've, I've expre- experienced this before, that totally change what's actually coming out or what's coming out isn't really how I feel. That's what we're talking about. Conscious and subconscious matches. Uh, when, what we're, when what is being expressed inside and what's being expressed outside don't match. That's incongruency, and we're going to talk about that. A way in which we distort, exaggerate, withhold, or lie. And the result of not being prepared to accept what it might mean for them to tell or admit the truth. And understand, that's not necessarily a conscious thing. There are some things that are just too painful, too hard, or whatever to be able to express. And so they're withheld subconsciously. Or sometimes we'll even twist and turn in our mind what actually happened because we can't deal with it. Often, it may often be uh, unconscious, but may also be miscommunication between you and the individual, and just and that's just as important. Inconcru- uh, integrity of your relationship with them is important. Understand, you are the advisor or the counselor, doesn't mean you understand everything or you're even listening properly or understanding what they're trying to say. And so sometimes we have to circle back around and make sure that we really do understand what's being said. Uh, it's most easily incongru- incongruency or congruency is most easily seen in verbal incongruity with body, vocal, action, things that just don't seem to fit. The guy that's sitting there talking to you about something that he's happy about, but he's pounding his leg at the same time or the table. Or he just, you know, and it just doesn't match. That's what we're talking about. Uh, It can also be picked up by paying attention to the negative, uh, or excuse me, to the narrative, saying one thing one time and then something else later that contradicts it. And again, that might not necessarily be a lie, it may just show you the confusion that that person has. So how do you respond to that? What you're saying is, I hear that there's more than one side to this. And there often is more than one side to what they're saying. Matter of fact, there may be many sides to what they're saying. I know what you mean when you say something, but I'm not sure what you mean by it. Uh, can you tell me more about, uh, can you tell me what that means to you? And. Uh, I think he gives some uh, examples of that later. Um, You can encourage them to add more to the story, flesh it out, rather than accept a statement uh, at face value. So you want them to explain something a little bit more, give you a little bit more detail. Uh, Curiosity about the individual and the story. You know, you're never going to get somebody to open up to you and flesh something out if you don't even seem interested in what they're actually saying because you're, you're, you're looking up Bible verses that'll take care of the problem or whatever. So we really need to be, show that we're really interested. Somebody says to you, I hate my parents. Well, does that, what does hate mean to them? Uh, do they hate their parents or the, their behavior towards them? Uh, do they hate the relationship with their parents instead? Are they simply expressing pain over a situation that they're in? They may not hate their parents, but they hate something that just happened in the family. And one of the things that I found really interesting is, you know, focus on the positive. Well, when you're in a situation like that, what what can you possibly find positive about them hating their parents? Well, you can at least compliment them on the fact that they're willing to be honest uh, and and mention their strengths. And, you know, you might say, well, they look sound like a really weak individual. What strengths do they have? They had enough strength to come and talk to you. So compliment them on that and 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 progress uh, and their progress simply in seeking help, you know sometimes you can't give the answer, you might not even know what the answer is, but at least encourage the dialogue enc- encourage the communications because the last thing you want to do is to cut that off, in which case you can't help anybody. Um, next one is absence um, and uh, what's not there, and that can take. A couple different forms. Something that's not being said. If we're talking about an issue that somebody has and they're not really even addressing what seems to be the problem, then obviously there's, a, there's an absence there. Um, but also too much of something can be said. We're, we're spending all this time talking about something but not really getting any information. Uh, both connect by a lack of important in information being provided to you. If you're not getting information from the person, you're not going to be able to help them and so all the, you really have an absence sort of a situation going on there. Uh, another way is omissions. Um, they may not believe, uh, believe it to be uh, problematic or pertinent. Sometimes people won't talk to you about something, because they don't see it as an issue. You've been able to pick up already that there might be an issue with something, but they don't even understand it uh, as a problem or that it even relates to what their situation is. Um, it may simply be too painful or embarrassing to discuss. When we're talking about sin in the lives of individuals, that is not something that's easily discussed. There are landmines, rabbit holes, and red herrings. And I'm gonna, when we deal with absence, and we're going to talk about that. Landmines are emotionally explosive. It's when you say something, the person just simply blows up. Don't go there a second time. You're going to say, but wait a minute. That's what we need. Don't go there the second time. If they keep blowing up, they're dropping barriers to your being able to help them. So it isn't going to help necessarily to harp on something that keeps blowing up in both of your faces. Uh, Rabbit holes, which are interesting. Uh, uh, Repeatedly returning to an experience or a story dwelling on it and using it to keep you from progressing. They're keeping going back to the same thing, and just going round and round and round over what so-and-so did to them or what happened here. And it goes round and round and round and round and you're just circling the rabbit hole, but you're never getting anywhere with it. And a red herring is when you actually get false leads to throw you off the real issue. They may want to talk about some other issue rather than the one that's really important simply because it's either too painful, they can't quite face it or whatever, so they're taking off in a different direction. So how do you respond to absence? You've got to let the person know somehow, I see what you're not showing me. Uh, appropriate way to respond can vary. Sometimes not responding or just letting it go for now. Those landmines, let it go for now. You know what the situation is. You know that there, something made them blow up. You know there's an issue there, but let it go for now. It's not going to be therapeutic, or which actually means to be able to minister to someone. I kind of like that when I, I looked up the term therapeutic. It, it comes from the Latin, to minister. So we're trying to minister to their needs, and if they're going to blow up, that is not going to be helpful, so just let it go for now. Sometimes stopping the individual in the moment. There may be a time when you well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not talking about the most important thing. Then see if they blow up. You may have to back around. But understand that sometimes you just, or, you know, this story that you're talking about, about sister so-and-so who did this to you for so long, that has nothing to do with this issue. You can sometimes just stop them. But you must rely on the cues of the situation and your own intuition to decide how to respond. And if I might say the Spirit's leading... You know, while we're talking a lot of, of, of psychological terms and stuff here, the Spirit is the one that has to lead and to guide you as an advisor. Always, and this is, this, this is true, always be tactful, warm, non-judgmental, sometimes even apologetic. Uh, and think about Romans. Be, Romans twelve ten. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. Or Ephesians 4, 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. That's the kind of an attitude that you really need to be a counselor or a spiritual advisor. You're not there, and we're going to talk a little bit later about why you're not there to be an authority figure. One of the ways that you can do it is the Colombo approach. And I guess they actually use this terminology in psychology class. Some of us remember the old TV show Columbo, the, the detective. The Peter Falk just passed away recently, I guess. Trench coat and collar up, always looked the shovel, and he actually was blind in one eye, and he was this great detective. Because I, I, I have one one question, just one more thing, and he always acted like the village idiot practically, but in the back of his mind, he knew what was going on, you know. Just one more question. So sometimes remember you may have to you may have to dummy down so to speak because you're really trying to have this person open up to you and if they think that you're you think you're all that in a, a bag of doritos as they say they're not going to open up. So, you know, you, communication is what you're what you're looking for here and that, that has to happen on an even playing field. And we'll talk about why that's uh, so important. But play dumber than you are. It's okay. I'm confused. Explain to me how, or how this or that. Or I notice this and that. Or I'm curious about how something else goes. Um, I may not be clear at this point. Can you help me? It communicates the possibility of you being wrong. And understand something. You might be. You might not understand the situation. You might not really know what's going on. So admit it to them. Because trust me, they're probably going to know. Uh, it communicates that you may be uh, seeing something that they aren't showing you. It's the old Columbo thing, you know, when Columbo said, "I, oh, just one more question." Used to make the crooks nervous because they realized he wasn't quite as dumb as they thought, and maybe he was starting to see what was going on. So let's look at, at, at inference, and what inference is not interference. It's inference, the things we imply. Okay. So an individual may know very little about what they do want or excuse me, yeah, about what they do want, but they know a lot about what they don't want. And, and I found this kind of interesting. They infer what their goals are without being explicit and can't, can't imagine what life would be like without their current problems. And this kind of gets kind of interesting. Actually, it, promote, it promotes and prompts their grappling with the issue. They're actually promoting the problem that they have and being interested in it, a strict linear focus. Um, I don't want to do whatever sin anymore. And, you know, I, I don't want to look at pornography on the Internet anymore. Well, that's a pretty big issue and something uh, pretty bad. I don't want to I, I don't I don't want to give up what whatever behavior. And what it does is it creates what they call in psychology the polar bear effect. It's the elephant in the room, as we laymen call it. The big thing that's there that everybody tends to either not focus on, or but in their case, they focus on it. They focus on it all the time. They, they focus, you're, talking about, uh, you're talking to somebody. Um, let me read this one yet. Uh, they don't know what life would lo- be like without that particular issue because they struggled with it for so long. The soul that you're, you're counseling towards their soul salvation. And, and they, they have the issue with pornography. And they focus on it, focus on it, focus on it, focus on it. And it, you'd say, well, good. The, the Lord's showing them what their sin is. That's true. But the devil is also showing them what their sin is and focusing them so tightly on that that everything else is peripheral. And they don't even see that there is anything else other than that one big issue that's keeping them away from the Lord. So how do you respond to that? I hear what what you're not saying, is what you're trying to tell them. You need to help them shift their focus from what they don't want to what they do. Uh, Bring them uh, to a new viewpoint that allows them an entrance of hope in the situation. Prompt them to consider what they can do about this situation and help them to be creative. And we're going to talk about it in a second. Ask the miracle question. The miracle question is this. If you went to bed tonight, and you woke up in the morning, and let's take the person that has the pornography issue, and tomorrow you woke up and you had no temptation whatsoever to look at those things on the Internet, what would your life be like? If you think about that for a second, the soul's been focusing all this time on their their sin of pornography, and they never even hardly thought about what life would be like without it. Because the devil's had them totally focused on that. Well, what would it be like? Well, I, I, I'd, I'd be able to spend more time in prayer, and I'd be closer to the Lord, and, and I'd be more focused on him. I'd I'd be able to spend more time with my family, because I wouldn't be hiding out in my room at night, and I'd probably be able to sit in church a lot freer. and. And when you start to think about it, those are exactly the things that need to take place in their life to help them overcome that addiction that they find themselves in. And so the, the, the problem with people, the problem that people with problems have, is that they focus so much on their problems sometimes that they forget there really is a solution. And your job as an advisor or as a counselor is to bring them to the point where they can see that this is not a hopeless situation. There is no Sin taken you, but such as is common with men. And God can, with that temptation, also give you a way of escape. Paraphrase, sorry. Um, There is hope. There really is hope. And that's what we're trying to do. Uh, Use this to investigate what the individual is getting out of, not overcoming their problem. Understand, let me see, what positive thing is uh, what positive thing is this doing for them and what does it help them not face or not deal with? Sometimes we forget that focusing so much on the problem that we say we can't overcome seems to just absolve us from taking care of everything else or committing to everything else. And so there are times when an individual uses use the problems that they have or the issues that they have, the sins that they have, to stop them from progressing I wish I could see this whole thing so I see how far I actually am. Um, A little bit more about nonlinear listening. Uh, Presence. Potential uh, uh, implied meaning of messages is changed or enhanced via the tone of voice and bodily expressions. Um, Body language acts as a qualifier of what's being verbally offered to you. We have, I, I, sorry, I didn't make a really good transition to the presence idea, but the presence is, is, is more what we're seeing in them and hearing in them, not so much in words, but the things we're perceiving in what the person's talking to us. Spoken words are actually 7% of expressed meaning. You think about that for a minute. 7% of what somebody is saying to you is what they actually use in words. Tonal quality, or voice, is up to 38%. How I say it, that's, that's why, you know, my son sometimes takes me aside when, uh, when, when I talk to someone or about something. And he says, you know, Dad, how you say it's more important about, than what you say. But in reality, how I say it is telling you how I feel. But that's why the tone of voice is so important. Facial expressions, posture and gesture is 55% of what I say. Now, all of a sudden, you understand that when you're talking to somebody or when you're listening to somebody, you are not just listening to the words that are coming out of their mouth. To communicate with somebody, to really receive what's being said, you have have got to have your eyes open. Um, You've got to be actually looking at them, paying attention. Pay attention to the body and the words. Look for the inconsistencies, exaggerations fidgeting, etc. cetera. Uh, look for a lack of display. Somebody totally shut down and their, their voice is going, they're talking, but there's no emotion there whatsoever. Uh, it requires you to be attentive and focused, but also actively connect and, and conclude regarding the individual. That's, that's uh, psychological speak for you're actually paying real close attention to what they're, what's going on inside them. That's what the conclude regarding. And you're making, you're making decisions as to what it means. Sometimes I have to dummy down his stuff a little bit. Um, so how do you respond to the present uh, presence? Uh, individuals may not realize the disconnect be- between what they say and what they do. A lot of times our emotions are going to be shown Uh, They may not uh, be connected with uh, what they really feel. Sometimes we just, rather than deal with it, we shut it out. Uh, Our presence or our body language gives voice to what's not being verbalized. Those deep sighs, you might say, suggest uh, this is a very painful thing for you to talk about. You know, you you can sense that. Or, uh, can you tell me more about those tears I see right now? They may not have even said anything, but all of a sudden they started crying. This is a chance for you to ask them what's making you cry. Or I noticed you wrinkle your nose whenever you discuss whatever. I'm not sure what that uh, uh, what it means when you do that. Why, why are you? And, and you might not. You may have not a clue what that means. But there may actually be some significance to that. And if it's happening over and over, and you know, if body part X could talk, what would it be saying about all of this? That's what you're really asking. Uh, or when you're talking about whatever you did this, when you were talking about how happy you were, you were sitting there pounding your, your leg, okay? Uh, what do you think that's about? What time do we finish here? I know I'm supposed to know. 11.40. Oh, good. <laughs> I was getting scared. Um, resistance. This is the one that nobody really wants to experience. When you're listening to somebody and you get resistance... This is where it gets a little bit difficult. It's a desire not to change. And the I, I, like I say, I'm not a psychologist. I, I think if I had it to do over again, I would love to go. And, and my, my son keeps saying, it's never too late, Dad. You know, they got these classes at night. But, I mean, seriously, I, when I think about counseling, when I thought about, about help, helping people work through their problems as a... Uh, a psychologist or one, I, I, I really had this idea that, oh, it, you, you just learn all this stuff about what makes people tick, and then you can tell them how to fix their issues, and they move on, and life's great. It doesn't really tend to work that way, because the human mind doesn't work that way. Our emotions don't work that way. What you're really trying to do is to get them to change. There's a situation in their life that needs to change, and they know it, or sometimes they don't know it, and you're trying to help them bring about that change that will be able to make them live a more quiet, peaceable, joyful life in the Lord. And so what ends up happening is you meet with resistance. You, you, you've sat with them for quite some time. You really do understand the situation, and now you're ready to give some, some helpful advice, like, well, let's, let's look at, we asked the miracle question, and now we know what life would be like without our problems, so let's look at those things that you talked about and see if maybe we can, we can implement some of those. And they say, well, I'll try. I, I know I should do this or that, Uh, Yeah, but that's always the great one. Yes, but, or you know, I've tried that and it didn't work right away. You see, they're not really open to change; they're resisting the advice that you're or the or the counsel that you're trying to give them. Um, So, and and it can be seen in facial expressions and eye contact, etc. One of the neat things that I found, uh, Rob showed me uh, this. one pretty famous psychologist, they actually videotaped some counseling sessions. And so they show you examples of all of this. And as the counselor is talking, all of a sudden, as if somebody hit a switch, the woman just plain shut down. The head drops. We're looking down at the floor. We're not really paying attention. We're hearing what you're saying, but she's just letting you know, I have to totally shut you off and I'm not paying any attention from here on. You're saying it. I'm not receiving it. That's resistance. This is something that the, something the individual is either A, unwilling to do, they just don't want to make the change right now, unprepared to do, they don't feel capable, they don't have the tools they need, they're simply unable. I cannot do this at this point. Um, they may be doubtful that uh, their ability to do whatever it is, uh, but may also be unsure that what that they really want to do it, whatever X is, remember interference, or excuse me, inference, uh, what, they're, what they're getting out of not giving this up. Remember that in the back of their mind, whether they even really understand it or not, is the reality that this issue that they have, this sin that they're dealing with or whatever, is actually giving them an escape from committing their life to the Lord or you know, it, it may be simply that this sin that the devil has bound them up in for so long has become so big in their mind that they're actually now using it as an excuse not to give their life to the Lord. If they'd give their life to the Lord, the sin could be taken care of. But they buy into what the devil says and because it gives them an out. They don't have to come to the Lord because of this big sin. Uh, in the I'll tries and the yes buts, individual is, readily, is already conceiving ways in which the given strategy will fail. While you're sitting there talking to them, they and the devil are already working out why what you're telling them is not going to work or how it's going to come apart. So how do you respond to resistance? You can be honest and say, understand that you're not ready for this right now. Um, understand that the individual may feel uh, ambivalent about fully committing to the action, and as an example, consider the average number of years that it takes our young people to commit to Christ. You know, I, I'm I'm teaching 13-year-olds, and Dad was with me down there, and and I told them, you know, I was 13 when the Lord called me, so I don't mind teaching 13-year-olds. I kind of enjoy it because I still can remember what it felt like to be at camp and realize for the first time that I was one of the sinners that needed to come to the Lord. But I admitted to them already. I know that. Not all of you are gonna want to give your life to the Lord just because you've been called. I know that most of you will resist that. Why? Because most of us do. And that's the reality about resistance. And sometimes we have to understand that just because you got the answer to the problem and you know what somebody needs to do with the Lord's help, that doesn't mean that they're gonna accept that. So you're gonna have to figure out ahead of time how you're gonna deal with that. You can gently probe for more information But don't be challenging or confrontational or else you risk the the relationship and stonewalling. Counseling is a relationship between a counselor and the counselee, which there is no such word, but the person being counseled. And if you break up that relationship to the point where they stonewall you, they build up a stonewall between you, you're not going to be their counselor anymore. And that's why the scripture talks about speaking the truth in love. It isn't going to do you any good if you can't speak the truth to them because they won't listen to you anymore. So remember the love that needs to be there. Now use the Colombo approach, act a little bit dumb, um, and presence responding technique to draw out the resistance, getting them to admit that there's that this is one step closer to having them excuse me, getting them to admit it is one step closer to having them accept it. I can't help but notice, you can say, I can't help but notice that this seems difficult for you. Or I notice you squinting when you said this. What are you thinking about then? Get them to verbalize it. If you can just get them to verbalize it, at least it's out there. And then maybe, maybe we can't deal with it now, but maybe we can later. This is a toughie. Beware of feeling irritated or impatient. This is one of the most difficult components of listening and responding to cope with. It means you're, pu- you're going to be putting in more time into the encounter. There's nothing more frustrating than knowing the answer and having someone refuse to take it. Or having the gift there, and you're, you know, think how the Lord feels when He calls us. You know, here, here's the greatest gift in all the world, and, and we just won't take it. So, what does the Lord do? Well, to heck with you. If you don't want to accept it, it's your it's your it's on your head now. I hate to say it, but there are times when maybe <coughs> some people might have gotten that kind of counsel. That's not the way the Lord deals with us. You know, in in tender love, He keeps prodding. He keeps He, he is more patient than we, we will ever be able to be. So understand that just because you're the counselor doesn't mean that you're not going to become the patient to a degree. And being just as frustrated and what... Take it to the Lord, greatest counsel in all the world. Don't take it back to the person you're trying to counsel. You have to remember that you're the one that's trying to maintain the therapeutic or the helpful ministering uh, part of this relationship. Level the playing field. Effective therapeutic relationships are equal relationships of mutual respect. This is is a really important thing to try to understand. Uh, Ministers, elders, other Christians cannot allow themselves to be put on a pedestal. Why is that? And this, it's, this is not lecture at this point. Why do you think it is important that you not be put on a pedestal? Nobody would ever open up to you. Okay. In some cases, people won't open up to you. Okay. They think, I'll, I'll repeat them just so that we, we can get it on tape. People won't open up to you if you put yourself on a pedestal. That can be true. They can see you as such an authority figure that you're unapproachable. We're not on a level playing field at all here. What do you think is another danger? When you mess up, your credibility is lost. Okay, yeah. When, a, when you mess up, your credibility's lost. And understand something. You're human. You will mess up, even as a counselor or an advisor. You will not always give the right answer because you're human. I don't care how much you've prayed beforehand. And it's important, sometimes it's important to share that. With the individual you're talking to, well, I might actually be wrong. <gasps> really? Yeah. The ministers, the elders, the teachers can be wrong sometimes. There's another even bigger reason not to be put on a pedestal. If, if we, you are above and beyond and perfect, so they don't even relate to their problems because they don't know what they're like. Okay, if you're above and beyond and perfect, you can't relate. Kind of, uh, kind of what Brother Allen said, but. Yeah, you're, you know, you're just too high and above. You can't understand. You'll never be able to give me an answer because you can't understand how I feel. You're robbing, giving the credit to God. Okay, you might be robbing, giving the credit to God. That's a very important thing. There's another really important thing too. You become the miraculous healer that's supposed to so- solve all their problems. When that doesn't happen, guess whose fault it is. You have, a real, you have a real danger if you set yourself up as the know-it-all and the ability to solve all the problems. And I can, I'm deeply spiritual, and after all my years of experience, I can tell you. Then they're going to start to put their faith and trust in you. And you know, that, that, that's no better spiritually when we're talking about counseling souls that are seeking the Lord. Don't have them look to you for the answers. Because you're not the one that has them, number one. You're supposed to be giving the honor and glory and the credit to God. But also understand, they need to trust in God, not you, because you are fallible and you may make mistakes. And when they have problems, guess who they're going to blame? You. Because you didn't fix it. And it's not their fault. It isn't even God's fault. It's your fault. And they're putting all their faith and trust and expectation in you, and it failed, Obviously, they have another scapegoat to be able to, to blame all of their problems on. You are not the miraculous healer. You don't want to be the miraculous healer. The only miraculous healer was Jesus Christ. And you want to take them to him and let the two of them work it out. You're there to walk with them, not even to lead them. The Spirit of God needs to lead them. They have to be led by him and him alone or else you set yourself up as to be one of the biggest problems that they could end up having because they'll think you can solve all their problems. So you need to meet the individuals as an equal. Go down to where they are and walk with them. Consider what Jesus' example with his many encounters in the Bible. He had um, expectations, yes, uh, but there were mutual expectations, uh, he met sinners and publicans to help them out of their sin and to bring them from where they were to where they needed to be. And we should be no different. One of the things that I thought about, one of the most beautiful counseling sessions, I think, in, in the Bible is, is when uh, the Apostle Peter met Christ by the sea after his resurrection. And the Lord asked him three times, do you love me? That, that, that is one of the most incredible counseling sessions that I, I think ever took place because the, the, most, the only perfect counselor was there doing it. But as he took Peter from a man who had denied him three times and then asked him, Peter, do you love me with a godly love? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you with a brotherly love. Okay, Peter, feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me with an agape love like one loves the father with great personal dedication? Lord, you know I love you like a brother with a filial love. Feed my sheep, Peter. Peter, do you love me with a filial love? You love me like a brother? Peter breaks down because now he sees that God, the, the Lord has come down to his level. And do you know what the problem was with Peter? It wasn't that he didn't love the Lord with all his soul, might. and all. He loved the Lord the best he could. That's all Peter could do. He didn't have the spirit in his life that could, that could bring about that agape love, that ability to, to love the Lord the way he needed to. Peter knew that. Guess what? The Lord knew that too. He just wanted to show Peter that he knew that. And that's why Peter cried. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you with a brotherly love. Okay, Peter, it's done. Feed my sheep. And we see the Lord working with him as, as one who, who understood, because he was God himself, what was going on in this man's heart. But those are the sort of things that the Lord wants us to be able to try to do with his help, with his inspiration, with his knowledge... To be able to bring people from where they feel that there really is no hope, I've forsaken the Lord and there's nothing that I can do. No, that's not true. There is no hopeless situation on this earth because the Spirit of God can always be applied to it. We need to remember that. Avoid telling them and being prescriptive. In other words, telling them exactly what to do, how and why. Ask questions Help them to come to the conclusions on their own and you will need lots of patience. For more information, this is the book that Rob's professor actually wrote. Um, we, we talked a little bit, Rob and I, and I'm glad we have a little bit of time yet, um, so I am going to open it up for some questions, but again, I'm not a psychologist, counselor, haven't played one on TV, and I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express, so I don't necessarily have the answers. But the man that, uh, the Paluso, which is number two there after the first one that I can't even pronounce, is, is Rob's uh, advisor now in his counseling degree. Uh, he and his wife are, are some pretty warm Christian people, that have taken him under their wing and done a, a pretty nice job of helping him to be able to uphold his, his faith um, that they're able to understand with all the teachings that he's getting too. The book is not written from some uh, psychological standpoint that considers uh, Christian counseling or evolutionary counseling, and there are both. I said to Rob, you know, we're, we're in kind of muddy waters sometimes. I can remember the days when we wouldn't talk about... Uh, some, some people didn't like the idea that some of us went to teaching classes, quote-unquote, because we should be allowing the Lord to instruct us to be teachers. And I believe that's true. But by the same token... The Lord had given incredible wisdom to to a brother who was a professional teacher who knew all kinds of teaching techniques that he had learned over the course of many, many years. Why shouldn't he share that experience and that knowledge with those of us who were just young brothers but wanted to do as much as we could, not to puff up ourselves or for people to say, wow, what great teachers those are, but because God had given us a, 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 a need to teach, I'd like, I, I want to say a calling. You know, I, I got called on the carpet once about my preaching because I, made it, I, I was very apologetic that there weren't other brothers in Coconut Creek that could come and, and preach. I'd preach every Sunday. One old lady that's been coming to our church for a long time took me aside and she says, Can I ask you a question? I said, Yeah. I said, Don't you like to preach? How do you answer that question as an apostolic Christian minister? I love to preach. I'll get up every Sunday if they'd let me. I get up every Sunday because I know nobody else to get up. You know, love to have some help. And that's not an appropriate answer. You know, I, I love to get up there and show myself. But I said, you know, Annie, I do. I, you know, to, to get up there and to really feel the Spirit speak through you, which is really what's supposed to be happening. Give him all the honor, the glory, and the praise. But it does feel good to be used of God. She said, I should hope so. She said, Paul said, woe unto me if I preach not Christ. Well, then woe unto us teachers if we don't try to learn to teach as good, as good, as well as we possibly can to the best of the ability that God gives us, then give him all the honor and the glory and the praise, but let the effects of our effective teaching be to his use. Well, then shouldn't it be the same way with those of us who have to deal with people? You know, understand, the, the, the time's almost over, and those of you that came to learn how to counsel, you learned, hopefully, how incredibly involved and difficult it is just to listen. I spent a couple nights with this with Rob, and I said, how do you possibly do all of that at the same time? He said, well, you keep a notepad, so that's your linear stuff, and then you put notes all around the sides of the things that you're observing. But he said, it's the most exhausting thing he's ever done in his life. This class that he's taking in counseling He said he's doing well in it and and he he enjoys it but he says when I get done with one of those practice sessions I'm exhausted and can't do anything for an hour because my mind is so overloaded from trying to pay attention to so much and then my professor comes and shows me all the things I missed. So how is it that we should really expect that that other than by the grace of God and, and you know I am thankful that his his, uh, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. I, I, when I got ready for this form, I said, he's got all the right ingredients to make this a perfect form <laughs> because there's a lot of weakness here. But those of us that, are in he- that try to be helpers, those of us that try to be counselors, those of us that try to be advisors, need to learn some of these things because there's another issue that we also have to deal with that we haven't for a long time Not since uh, Brother Paul Weingartner did it many, many years ago. I can still remember the time that Brother Paul came to Syracuse and tried to tell us the difference between a spiritual problem, an emotional problem, a mental problem. And all three of those are different. They are not the same thing. Something that may be a chemical imbalance in somebody's brain is causing them to have what looks to you like a spiritual problem. How do you know the difference between the two? Somebody may have a spiritual problem that looks like a mental issue. You've got to learn how to work those things out, and that takes training a little bit. No, we're not trying to get the wisdom of men, but we need to get the brothers that really do know some of those things to sit down with some of us that don't, and help us to understand what, this, what, what a session like this should really do for us is to help us to understand that we probably do not have all the answers in most of the situations that we're going to come across. We need to be humble enough, first of all, to always begin. Never talk to anybody without praying with them first. And when you're praying with them at the beginning of a counseling session, pray for yourself in that prayer. Let them know that you need God's help and direction just as much as they do, just to know how to be used to Him to help them. Secondly, be humble enough to know when you're in over your head. There are going to be times, because of the situations that we face, that we're going to be dealing with somebody who has an issue that may in fact be a medical issue, a mental illness. You can't fix that. God can through a miracle, but that's what it's going to take. You're going to need to have some help. So what we need to be able to do is to have places where people can go to get answers to the questions that we as counselors have. That's why I hope and pray that someday we'll be able to do at least a little bit more like the sister church. They have a counseling uh, department that their brothers can go to where they have trained professionals that can understand some of these things. We shouldn't be ashamed or feel that we're in any way slighting God because we ask for help and be able to understand what people's problems really are. And lastly, I I hope that that it encourages all of us, and it certainly has to me. I, I told my son, I all of a sudden realized that he's a grown man not just because he got engaged recently, but when I, when I listened to him teaching his father. As a, I was going to say it was a humbling thing. It was, but it was also a very beautiful thing to see the wisdom that God has given to my child and that, that God can use him to help me to learn. We need, we need to do more of that. So hopefully we'll be able to, to have some more of these. We just talked about listening. We didn't even talk about what to tell them or how to help them. So use this as a place to, to try to learn more, to, to talk to We have some brothers that, that are psychologists, counselors, talk to them. Uh, do we, is it time to finish or do we still have five minutes? Any questions that you might have that... I probably won't know the answer to, but I'm willing to try to field. If not, thank you for your time and attention, your prayers. I appreciated them a lot, and for climbing the hill when it's so hot.